podcast, episode one of an entirely new series on the science of can and can't by Chiara Marletta. Now, I did say towards the end of the beginning of Infinity series, which I haven't quite finished yet, I said that the only thing that could dissuade me really from my next project being an exploration of The Fabric of Reality, David Deutsch's first book, would be if David published something brand new. And that didn't quite happen. What happened instead is that David's colleague, Chiara Marletto, has published an absolutely astonishing book about constructor theory called The Science of Can and Can't. And it was so interesting, inspiring, original, groundbreaking that I couldn't let the opportunity pass without doing a series on this book alongside The Fabric of Reality. I think it'll be really interesting to compare how some of these ideas have evolved over the last few decades, because certainly the seeds of the thinking of constructive theory are there in The Fabric of Reality in, in, a, in a certain form. Now, as I've been doing this podcast, TopCast, I have had messages over the months and years now that I've been speaking about these topics. I've had requests for particular episodes. Could you do an episode on this or that? Possibly one of the most frequent requests I get is, could you do something on constructor theory? And, and to be honest, I have really wanted to do exactly that. Have an episode or even an entire series on constructor theory. But it has always seemed to me to be too high a mountain to climb for myself. There is a risk with any new theory like this of simply not doing it justice or, in fact, making egregious errors. Perhaps dumbing it down a little bit too much patronizing the audience or perhaps going in the other direction and getting too technical and perhaps making it too boring and getting away from what I really want to do here, which is, I hope, make something both as clear as possible in such a way that I think that I personally come to a deeper understanding of it, as well as at the same time being actually faithful to the truth of the actual explanations without denuding any of the ideas of their explanatory power. So it's a fine line at times in trying to communicate any area of science, but in particular a brand new fundamental theory of physics. If I was to cleave more towards the highly technical, then the audience would probably become a little smaller. But the entirely broad brushstrokes mean you're not going to get the accuracy and precision that I think is needed. And so, so taken all together, um, I kind of thought that constructor theory for me seemed like too big of an ask until now. Chiara Marletto has managed to provide with her book here something that is made for export to different kinds of media, like this one, for example. And, and what I love is it begins with a lot of what we already know, peppered with the spice of some cleverly new deep insights and big claims that make it really exciting. And then it begins to dive into what can only be described as revolution. Now, I, of course, use that word advisedly. I'm not big on thinking that someone like Thomas Kuhn was correct, that they're the history of science is about the history of scientific revolution, the overturning utterly of other ideas. In fact, when you look and analyse the history of science, what you find is, in fact, anything that is described as revolutionary turns out on closer inspection to be an incremental difference from what had existed before. But sometimes that incremental difference is highly creative, and it seems like it is a complete overturning of what went before. But usually... New theories contain within them, as a subset, or at least 
are predicated upon ideas that preceded them. This is not to deny the great person vision of science. I am very much a subscriber that to the idea that we need to have iconoclastic physicists working against the grain, that the history of science has been people who are what we would call geniuses. It doesn't mean that none of us can learn what those people have done or even accomplish what those people have done. But what it means is some people are able to think outside the box and think of something creative, something new. And often this has been called a revolution in science when someone does think of something genuinely new. So so the, the, these traditional ideas about scientific revolution, whether they are the Copernican Revolution, the Darwinian Revolution, ideas about continental drift and geology and so on. Believe it or not, that is regarded as revolutionary and one of the more recent scientific discoveries. Actually, these things are kind of incrementally better than what went before. It's just that sometimes the increment might be a little bit bigger. <laughs> now, here in Chiara Maletto's The Science of Canon Kant, we are indeed getting a theory that is as big a jump as any of those that I mentioned. The Copernican Revolution, the Darwinian Revolution, the, the Big Bang Revolution, uh, Einstein's Relativity Revolution, all of these things. Construct a theory really is on a par with those kind of things. But at the same time, there's an incremental aspect to it. It does come out of, it does, it's an evolution or a generalization, as David Deutsch might say, of the theory of computation, the theory of quantum computation. It takes this, generalizes it, goes further with it, and then probes areas of science that hitherto physics hasn't had much contact with. For example, biology. There is, I, I didn't in fact do myself, um, biophysics at university, but this is a, a different way of approaching that. And even more exciting, it brings epistemology. Epistemology, to some extent, within the purview of physics, it's as if we have a physics of knowledge creation, the nascent beginnings of a physics of knowledge creation here. And this is why I'm particularly excited about this theory in physics. It's really, it's deeper than just a theory of physics. It is a theory of science. This is why the title of the book is The Science of Canon Kant rather than merely The Physics of Canon Kant. So the fact, that, the fact that this new theory reaches into physics, it reaches into computation, which is already a part of physics anyway, biology, perhaps astonishingly into art, and we're going to hear about that in this episode, it's, it, it, is, it has something to say about literature to mythology. We'll come to that. So it's absolutely an amazing book. It reads as if it belongs in that great lineage of books that began with the fabric of reality, and it's now presenting for the lay reader an entirely new mode, as we say, of explanation, a new way of conceiving how to do physics from the ground up. So that's quite the task that Chiara has set herself for a popular audience book. But of course, just as with The Beginning of Infinity, it's really not just a popular science book. It is that, but more. Like, for example, up here on my shelf sits the Goldilocks Enigma there by Paul Davies. And that's, in fact, mentioned in The, the Science of Canon Kant. The Goldilocks Enigma really is a popular science book, a typical popular science book. I don't want to denigrate it in any way at all. It, it, it is a wonderful overview of 
the fine-tuning problem, which requires it to summarise what we hitherto know about aspects of physics, chemistry and biology. And that's a wonderful, absolutely wonderful, I encourage people to read popular science books like that. But I'm just mentioning it in order to contrast it with a book like this, or a book like The Beginning of Infinity, of course. Because this book, like The Fabric of Reality, like The Beginning of Infinity, in the main, is, is not, in the main, discussing the well-established, well-known areas of science that kind of already appear in standard high school undergraduate textbooks by putting a little spin on the top, a little bit of icing on the cake, a little bit of philosophical significance to these uh, well-established scientific ideas. Instead, this is new stuff. This is a new theory which has been published out there in refereed journals, of course, but is now, for the first time, really, being brought to a general audience in book form. There are lots of resources out there on the constructortheory.org website, lots of talks for people who are new to this, but this is the first time in one place we have a whole bunch of that very latest research synthesized into a single volume. And personally, in the book, what I've so far found is truly intriguing. And we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to this uh, today in this episode. How in physics, the denial of the possibility of considering counterfactuals means that physics cannot possibly tell anything like a complete story of reality in its present form. Now, I emphasize the word story, as you will come to see, and there's a clue on the cover, at least the, the, the Australian cover, uh, the Kindle version, uh, about this story. Just as I, I mentioned literature earlier, what on earth could literature have to do with physics? We will see. Explanations, really, to be explanations that allow us to understand what is happening in the world, need to consider what else could have happened in the world, aside from what will happen or what does happen in the world. So explanations, to be complete explanations, fundamental explanations, need to consider counterfactuals, what could have been. And so like I say, one of the astonishing parts here is that we will see this comes to bear on literature, on things like myth and fiction, but also history for the same reasons as essentially this theory works in science. In constructive theory, we can seemingly do away also entirely with the notion, therefore, of probability in physics. Instead, if there is a law of physics prohibiting something, then it's an impossible task. And that's that. But if it's possible, this means there is no such law of physics and there is a constructor that could cause it to occur. So I really should start the book. There's going to be a lot that I'm going to skip um, but, I, but I will begin. I will begin by reading the foreword of the book by David Deutsch because, no, I'm not. No, I'm not going to do that because I want you to go and buy the book. I want you to go and actually get the book. You can get the ebook now as of this is May the 4th I'm recording this, which is the day the book is released. I presume this episode of mine will be out on the 5th of May, broadly speaking, around the world, depending upon your time zone. 
but the so the actual the actual hard cover version of the book doesn't come out until August, I don't think. But I'm going to be uh, careful careful with the passages that I read from the book because I don't want to think that anyone doesn't need to buy the book that you can just listen to my podcast and get a good understanding of it. I don't think that's the case, and I want to leave a whole bunch of gems that are in the book in the book again to encourage people. It's not it's not an expensive book by any stretch of the imagination. If you go to Kindle, uh, you can get it for a very reasonable price at the moment. But there is a there is a section there at the beginning goes for a number of pages, which is a forward by David Deutsch, which is of course worth the price of the book alone. But you're going to get a lot more than that. Now, also right at the beginning of the book, after the forward comes a a note on how to read the book. I'm not going to read that either. And there is also a bit of a prelude. And I won't read most of the prelude, but it is where I'll begin. I'll just read a a very small percentage of it, about 10% of that prelude, just one section of it. That's where I'm going to begin. The book is also interesting for the fact that it is chapters on the hard, rigorous science are interspersed with interesting little stories, which really bring, in many ways, the wonder of physics back. And that is another reason I'm excited about this book. Now, being someone who was trained in physics at the undergraduate level and to a lesser extent, the, the graduate level, uh, I went through the motions of being excited, inspired, and at times let down or disillusioned with the project of doing physics. And I had to keep finding motivation by finding new and interesting topics within physics to try and understand, to try and do. And this is one of those areas. This constructor theory is one of those areas which is just so new, fresh, exciting, and seems to show a lot of promise. And that's another reason that I'm doing this. It's not merely because there is this close association between the work of Chiara Marletta and the work of David Deutsch. It's not only that, but because this particular theory of physics is as exciting as any other area of physics out there. Uh, Areas of physics in cosmology, about the fine-tuning problem, for example, this will have something to say about that. How, how, how physics uh, might be able to find a resolution to this question about what is deeper, quantum theory or general relativity? And, and this will have something to say about that as well. Uh, it, it might have something to say about why, why string theory has so far not borne too much fruit in science, as much as it might be useful in mathematics. There are just so many avenues of promise that... Uh, A person who's interested in physics can find a real thrill in, not least of which is the derivation of the laws of thermodynamics from deeper principles, bringing the laws of thermodynamics into fundamental physics, as well as being emergent laws, they can be now talked about as being just as fundamental as anything else. And the reasons for that can be given through a constructor-theoretic lens. So all of this is just really exciting stuff. For anyone interested in, and, and, and of course, the, the epistemology stuff that I said, you know, that we could have a, a physics of epistemology, a physics, a physics of testability, for example. We're going to get there. We're going to get there throughout the course of reading through this book, which I imagine will take some months, and it will happen alongside a series on the fabric of reality as well. As I finally tie up the beginning of infinity. We can go back in time to where the beginning of infinity was inspired from, the fabric of reality, and forward to where the beginning of infinity is leading to, to the science of can and can't. So let me begin, and I'm beginning on page 
XIX because we're not quite at page one yet. So this is still in the prelude. Okay, so for the first of what I presume will be many, many times, I'm going to say, and Chiara writes, the assumption that all fundamental explanations in science must be expressed only in terms of what happens with little or no reference to counterfactuals is now getting in the way of progress. For counterfactuals are essential to a number of things that are currently explained only vaguely in science or not explained at all. Counterfactuals are central to an exact, unified theory of heat, work and information, both classical and quantum, to explain matters such as the appearance of design in living things and to a scientific explanation of knowledge. As I shall explain in this book, some of these things such as information, heat and work already have some explanation in physics, but it is insufficient. It is only approximate, unlike more fundamental theories of physics such as quantum theory and general relativity. Some others, such as knowledge creation, do not even have a fully-fledged explanation yet. All these entities must be understood without approximations for science to make new progress in all sorts of fields, from fundamental physics to biology, computer science, and even artificial intelligence. Counterfactuals are essential to understand them all. Pausing there. Just my unpacking of that a little, because what are counterfactuals? We haven't yet been given an explanation of what they are. Not by me, in the book, you do get one. So when I first heard about constructor theory, and I heard that it was, and I began to understand that it was, about counterfactuals, I realized that David Deutsch was following in a long line of philosophers and others who had tried to understand the nature of counterfactuals. Counterfactuals being about what could have been the case what might have happened, but didn't. And in physics, in constructor theory, in, in David Deutsch's new theory and Cara Maletto's new theory, what we're talking about is the physical possibility of things that could have happened, but perhaps did not happen. And we're going to sharpen that up as we go along. But I, I first encountered the significance or the mystery behind counterfactuals when I was at university, the University of New South Wales, uh, a lecturer of mine who's still there, a lecturer of philosophical logic, his name's Michaelis Michael, and one of his great heroes was David Lewis. David Lewis, an American uh, philosopher, and he wrote a book called Counterfactuals. So it's a philosophical exploration of trying to understand the logic behind how to understand counterfactuals. Now, I've had the science of Canon Kant for a few weeks now. Um, I managed to get an advanced copy and I read through it and I realized there was no contact there with David Lewis. And so I asked Chiara about this and there's good reason for that. There's a very good reason for that, that they want to clarify counterfactuals in terms of the physics. They don't want to get bogged down in philosophical debates about who else said what, when, and where. Instead, we're going to get a clean, new approach to what counterfactuals are about from a physical perspective. And so, yes, you can go out and you can find other books 
that are about counterfactuals, in particular a book called Counterfactuals by David Lewis, which is uh, uh, a wonderful book, a wonderful philosophical exploration. But what we would now say, what we would have to now say, I think, what we would have to conclude is that there is a better approach to these things. So reading that book, I guess, would be something like uh, learning about Newtonian physics. It could be useful and interesting and illuminating, but at the same time, if you want the new stuff, if you want the quantum computation of counterfactuals, you literally want the science of can and can't. So I am not going to, despite the fact I did, um, I grabbed my uni notes about um, modal logic and counterfactuals and the work of uh, people like Saul Kripke as well as David Lewis on this sort of stuff just to compare it. But I quickly realized, well, the science of can and can't, constructive theory, the new physics of counterfactuals is a much cleaner, better way to go because it's not utterly disconnected from all these other subject areas, which is sometimes what uh, philosophy can tend to be. Because after all, uh, David Lewis, for example, who, who wrote that book and, and who considered he also talked about the, you know, the, the reality of logically of, of other possible worlds, the logically possible other worlds. And this is how he was trying to make sense of counterfactuals. It, it didn't seem as though he was aware of um, avenues into reality, to physical reality, namely the Everett interpretation of quantum theory, that would have allowed him to really solidify and to understand more deeply uh, what these words essentially amounted to, uh, given what we know about physical reality. Okay, so after that additional preamble from Chiara and myself, let's begin with chapter one, which is titled, Such Stuff as Dreams Are Made On. And there's a little introduction, and Chiara writes, where I explain how to look at the laws of physics in a far broader way, including counterfactuals, statements about what transformations are possible or impossible, and you become acquainted with knowledge defined objectively via counterfactuals as information that is capable of perpetuating its own existence. Pausing there, and my reflection echoes there clearly of the sentiments in the beginning of infinity, one particular way of understanding what knowledge is. Knowledge is this special entity in the universe that tends to cause itself to remain in existence. And we used to say tend, uh, that once instantiated tends to cause itself to remain so. And I guess instantiated is a, a bit of a complicated word. So here we're saying perpetuating its own existence means the same thing. Let's get into the meat of the matter. The beginning of chapter one, Chiara writes, quote, most things in our universe are impermanent. Rocks are inexorably abraded away. The pages of books tear and turn yellow. Living things from bacteria to elephants to humans age and die. Notable exceptions are the elementary constituents of matter, such as electrons, quarks, and other fundamental particles. While the systems they constitute do change, those elementary constituents stay unchanged, entirely responsible for both the permanence and the impermanence are the laws of physics. They put formidable constraints on everything in our universe, on all that has occurred so far and all that will occur in the future. The laws of physics decree how planets move in their orbits. They govern the expansion of the universe, the electric currents in our brains and in our computers. 
They also control the inner workings of a bacterium or a virus. The clouds in the sky, the waves in the ocean, the fluid, molten rock in the glowing interior of our planet. Their dominion extends even to beyond what actually happens in the universe to encompass what can and cannot be made to happen. Whatever the laws of physics forbid cannot be brought about, no matter how hard one tries to realise it. No machine can be built that would cause a particle to go faster than the speed of light, for instance. Nor, as I have mentioned, could one build a perpetual motion machine, creating energy out of no energy, because the laws of physics say that the total energy of the universe is conserved. The laws of physics are the primary explanation for that natural tendency for things to be impermanent. The reason for impermanence is that the laws of physics are not especially suited for preserving things other than elementary components. They apply to the primitive constituents of matter without being specially crafted or designed to preserve certain special aggregates of them. Electrons and protons attract each other. It is a fundamental interaction. This simple fact is the foundation of the complex chemistry of our body, but no trace of that complexity is to be found in the laws of physics. Pausing there, my reflection. Already we have something new, astonishing, a different way of picturing what I have understood the second law of thermodynamics to be about. This is already giving us an insight into where this book is going to go, a different approach to physics altogether. The second law of thermodynamics is about entropy. And in, in simple language, it's about no process is perfect, uh, things degrade over time, uh, nothing remains permanent, except the elementary components of physical reality. So except for uh, electrons and quarks, for example. Now, why? Why should that be the case? Well, here we're getting a hint. Because the laws of physics apply to the primitive constituents of matter without being specially crafted or designed to preserve certain aspects, certain special aggregates of them. So the aggregates, the, the thing that you get when you put these constituents, these, these fundamental constituents, it's fundamental as far as we know, the electrons and the quarks, for example, uh, putting those things together in complicated ways creates an aggregate, cats and tables and people and stars, those things don't appear in the laws of physics. There's no tables in the laws of physics, but tables exist in our universe nevertheless. The same is true for cats. Same is true even for simple objects out there in space, far more numerous than any of those things that I've just mentioned, stars. They don't appear in the laws of physics. But the fundamental particles do in the standard model. They do appear in the laws of physics. So therefore, the laws of physics are telling you what exists over time. And so that, that is why those things exist over time and other things do not. Now, can we go deeper than that? Can we get beneath these laws of physics to say, why? Why would it be the case that some things will just continue and some things won't? That is going to be one of the motivations for constructor theory. So, and, and, and this idea, this idea that no trace of complexity is to be found in the laws of physics, even though there is complexity in the universe, is just such a deep mystery. So let's continue with the book. Kiara writes, Laws of physics, such as those of our universe, that are not specially designed or tailored to preserve anything in particular, aside from that elementary stuff, I shall call no design laws. Under no design laws, complex aggregates of atoms 
such as rocks, are constantly modified by the interactions with their surroundings, causing continuous small changes in their structure. Pausing there. So let's just recap that, because this is, this is an important, given a new theory, we're going to have some important ways of sharpening up nomenclature, sharpening up the fundamentals of the theory, which allow us to then go forth and to make predictions uh, that are testable, testable about this new theory. And one such thing is this concept of no design laws. So let me just emphasize that again. Kiara writes, laws of physics such as those of our universe that are not specially designed or tailored to preserve anything in particular, aside from elementary stuff, I shall call no design laws. So what's a no design law? It's a law that doesn't have any special place in it for the things that emerge out of that elementary stuff. The elementary stuff might be specified within the no design law, but there's nothing in those laws that suggest a design, even though we have appearance of design. It doesn't seem as though within the laws of physics, anywhere at all, do we find life? Do we find humans? Do we find anything more complicated than the basic constituents of matter? Okay, those fundamental particles, including the, the force carriers, which are fundamental particles as well. So this really is a new scientific theory. And in, in, in an earlier part of the book, uh, which I did not read in, in the, the fairly, fairly extensive preface, Kara says, we're going to meet new beasts along the way, new beasts along the way. So new things that new ways of conceiving of stuff that we haven't before. And I think this is one of the first, this concept of a no design law. So Kiara has just written, under no design laws, complex aggregates of atoms such as rocks, are constantly modified by the interactions with their surroundings, causing continuous small changes in their structure. And then she goes on, quote, From the point of view of preserving the structure, most of these interactions introduce errors in the form of small glitches, causing any complex structure to be corrupted over time. Unless something intervenes to prevent and correct those errors, the structure will eventually fade away or collapse. The more complex and different from elementary stuff a system is, the harder it is to counteract errors and keep it in existence. Okay, just pausing there again. Here we already see how constructor theory is drawing inspiration from the theory of computation. That to some extent, there's this idea of degradation in the physical world and the idea of error correction in computation. So here, there's already the hint of marrying these concepts together. Let's continue. The more complex and different from elementary stuff a system is, the harder it is to counteract errors and keep it in existence. Think of the ancient practice of preserving manuscripts by hand copying them. The longer and more complex the manuscript, the higher the chance that some error may be performed while copying, and the harder it is for the scribe to counteract errors, for instance, by double-checking each word after having written it. Given that the laws of physics are no design, the capacity of a system to maintain itself in existence in an otherwise changing environment is a rare, noteworthy property of our universe. Because it is so important, I shall give it a name, resilience. That resilience is hard to come by has long been considered a cruel fact of nature about which many poets and writers have expressed their resigned disappointment. Here is a magisterial example from a speech by Prospero in Shakespeare's Tempest. 
and Shakespeare wrote, Our revels now are ended. These are our actors. As I foretold you, we're all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself. Yea, all which it inherits shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. End quote from Tempest. Now those lines have such a delightful form and rhythm that, on first reading, something important may go unnoticed. They present only a narrow, one-sided view of reality which neglects fundamental facts about it. If we take these other facts into consideration, we see that Prospero's pessimistic tone and conclusion are misplaced. But those facts are not immediately evident. In order to see them, we need to contemplate something more than what spontaneously happens in our universe, such as impermanence, occasional resilience, planets and the cloud-capped towers of our cities. We shall have to consider what can and cannot be made to happen. The counterfactuals which too, as I said, are ultimately decided by the laws of physics. Okay, now, uh, pausing that. Now, I think it behooves me to go back and to actually read Shakespeare. Uh, there, There is a reason why people study Shakespeare as well as just enjoy it. And the reason is that it can be complicated. And so now here is my imperfect uh, attempt to translate uh, part of this. So Shakespeare wrote... Our revels are now ended. Uh, uh, we're all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. Uh, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, which we all inherit, shall dissolve. So what's he talking about there? Impermanence. Everything there. Our revels are now ended. So this thing is ending. Um, things melt into air, into thin air. So it, it sounds very grim, doesn't it? Uh, even our solemn temple, the great globe itself, the entire planet. So it's interesting that he uh, kind of got that. <laughs> yeah, that, that everything goes the way of the second law. Everything degrades. Everything is subject to entropy. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. So rounded with a sleep, there's nothing before, or at least we begin as babies sleeping, and we end as people dying sleeping. Um, all very depressing. <laughs> and Chiara is going to cheer us up. Chiara writes, quote, The most important element that Prospero's speech neglects is that even under no design laws, resilience can be achieved. There is no guarantee that it shall be achieved, since the laws are not designed for that, but it can be achieved because the laws of physics do not forbid that. An immediate way to see this is to look around a bit more carefully than was possible in Shakespeare's time. There are indeed entities that are resilient to some degree. Even more importantly, some are more resilient than others. Some of them very much more. These are not, contrary to what proverbs and conventional wisdom might suggest, are rocks and stones, but living entities. Pause there, my reflection. Wow, this is <laughs> thrilling already. Thrilling already. We are, we think... We look out uh, at, 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 at landscapes, like I'll put a landscape up and we think that, the, you know, there's uh, stone structures like this have just been there forever. 
And Australia in particular is an extremely old continent. You know, we're talking um, billions of years. There are rocks there uh, that exist in Western Australia, for example, that the geologists have found that have been there that have got that have got minerals in them that were there uh, not that long after the planet itself formed. They seem to be resilient, but there are things that rival that kind of thing, and ultimately will far outstrip any kind of mineral or rock or anything that seems to be robust. And that thing is life. And we think to ourselves, no, hold on, life degrades much more quickly than those things. Any individual organism uh, dies very, very quickly on geological timescales. Let's see what Kiara has to say about this. Let's keep going. And she writes, quote, Living things in general stand out as having a much greater aptitude to resilience than things like rocks. An animal that is injured can often repair itself, whereas a rock cannot. An individual animal will ultimately die, but its species may survive for much longer than a rock can. Consider bacteria, for example. They have remained almost unchanged on Earth for more than 3 billion years, while also evolving. More precisely, what has remained almost unchanged are some of the particular sequences of instructions that code for how to generate a bacterium out of elementary components, which are present in every bacterial cell, a recipe. That recipe is embodied in a DNA molecule, which is the core part of any cell. It is a string of chemicals of four different kinds. The string works exactly like a long sequence of words, composed of an alphabet of four letters. Each word corresponds roughly to an instruction in the recipe. Groups of these elementary instructions are called genes by biologists. Pausing there, my reflection. So this is just astonishing, interesting, new, a new way of looking at things, that there are aspects of biology that have remained in existence far longer than almost all rocks. Indeed, I would say all rocks. So there might be some minerals out there that exist for longer. And I suppose in a sense, you can kind of think of DNA as like a mineral, not really. Okay, there are technical differences if you speak to a chemist. But in both cases, it's just an arrangement of atoms, right? that are sticking together. But the thing with something like DNA is it's not just a mineral like a zircon. Every DNA strand is different to another DNA strand and it contains information. And some of that information is the same, consistent across DNA strands. For example, um, bacteria, which have been around, well, soon after the late heavy bombardment in astronomical terms here on Earth, um, DNA did appear. And some of those DNA strands have been replicated for the last what, three and a half billion years, something like that, through to today in certain bacteria or archaea even, these, 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 these thermophilic bacteria. Now, for the first time, I'm going to be skipping a fair bit of this chapter, which talks about the significance of the fact that DNA contains this resilient information. And I'll skip to the part where Kara writes, of course, the resilience of our civilization is constantly threatened by severe problems which crop up as we try to move forward. Some of them, such as global warming and fast-spreading pandemics, are in fact a byproduct, the very progress I have described. These problems present considerable challenges and could easily wipe out several aspects of the progress we have made. But the point I would like to focus on here is, it is possible to take steps to solve those issues, no matter how serious they appear. And the laws of physics do not forbid still greater improvement. They do not guarantee improvement or resolution, but nor do they forbid it. 
Resilience and further progress by addressing the problems such as the climate crisis are both possible. The laws of physics, expressed as counterfactuals, offer a chance for improvement. Pausing there. So this is introducing optimism, optimism into the laws of physics as well. We had this to some extent in the beginning of infinity. We had it as a description of how reality might operate. But here we're trying to sharpen things up and it appears as though with constructor theory, we're getting a more rigorous way of tying these things together. Optimism, epistemology of certain kinds, physics, biology, and computation. Okay, skipping a little more and going back to the book. And Chiara writes, These reflections suggest that the recipe in certain DNA patterns is much more resilient than stone and that the elements of our civilization for which there exists an analogous recipe, such as medicine, science, and literature, can be more resilient still. So under no design laws, a high degree of resilience seems to require there to be recipes of a particular kind. What kind? And what are such recipes made of exactly? The answer has to be constructed gradually and requires a digression about recipes. First, let's understand how recipes can be created under no design laws of physics. After all, as I said, the only thing that these laws preserve for free are certain elementary particles and chemicals. One therefore has to understand how those recipes have come about at all, out of elementary things that know nothing about recipes of such complexity. I shall start with the recipes coded in the pattern of living cells' DNA. It is now well understood how those have come about. Darwin's theory of evolution explains how living entities and their stupendous biological adaptations, such as the snout of the dog, the fins of a dolphin, or the wings of a bee, have come about in the absence of a designer, under no design physical laws. Now, each biological adaptation of a given animal is coded for somewhere in the recipe embodied in the DNA of that animal. What Darwin's theory tells us is how the recipes coding for complex biological adaptations can have come about without being explicitly designed. This will be key to understanding what the recipes are made of. As is often the case with deep theories, grasping exactly what problem Darwin's theory addresses requires some excavation. The problem was stated with great clarity by their theologian William Paley a few decades before Darwin's breakthrough. Living things are so perfectly orchestrated that they seem to have been the output of an actual design process, such as that which produces a car in a factory directed towards a purpose. They have the appearance of design, just like cars or smartphones or a watch. If you're walking along the beach and you suddenly see a watch on the ground, you may be guessing that some designer must have assembled it. But at the dawn of our planet's history, there was no designer, factory, or intentional design process that could create living things. Only elementary components of matter served in the form of an amorphous bubbling soup and nothing more. So how can living entities and their resilient recipes coding for the biological adaptations in their structure have come about in the absence of a designer? What Darwin discovered, and what Paley could not quite see, is that there is no need for any intentional design process. Biological adaptations in animals can be created out of elementary components of matter such as simple chemicals via a non-purposeful process called natural selection. That process needs only enough time and elementary resources such as simple chemicals and so on. It is an undirected mechanism, and yet it can produce purposeful complexity starting from scratch under laws of physics that are simple and no design themselves. Now at this point, Chiara goes into an explanation of evolution by natural selection, 
via the neo-Darwinian framework, which was uh, best explained by Richard Dawkins in The Selfish Gene. And so this idea of a replicator that allows for genes, genetic information, knowledge to be passed from one generation to the next is explained here. And I'm skipping all that. And, and she does make the point, of course, that during this process, this transcription process where the DNA can be replicated, where genes can be replicated, there is an error correction mechanism. So there's error correcting there at the core of how the transcription works. If there was no error correction, then there would be no replication. But the error correction isn't perfect, and so therefore you can have errors creep in, which leads to mutations, which leads to genes which can be more or less fit for particular environments. And this is the way in which, of course, you end up getting selection pressure and some things, some variants surviving uh, being more fit given a particular environment and some being less fit given a particular environment. Uh, for more on that, buy the book, <laughs> or of course, buy The Beginning of Infinity, or you could go back and read... Uh, uh, listen to uh, the chapters about uh, artificial creativity and creativity that appear in the beginning of infinity that I read through in my own series. Now, uh, this idea of um, um, some genes being more fit, um, when you have a, a mutation, you will produce a, a genetic variant that, you know, uh, 999 times out of 100, 999 times out of 1,000 or more, uh, the chance is that it's not going to be better for the organism, this particular gene. It's not going to be more fit. But sometimes it will be. Very rarely it will be. And Chiara on this point basically says, uh, quote, what distinguishes helpful changes in the recipe, the genetic recipe, from, um, from unhelpful ones? It is a particular kind of information, information that is capable of keeping itself instantiated in physical systems. It is resilient information. I shall call this resilient information which is the ingredient in successful recipes, knowledge. And I shall talk about it extensively in chapter 5. For adaptations, it is knowledge of some features of the environment. And so um, an explanation there about what biological knowledge is. Knowledge which is in the genes which keeps itself instantiated in physical systems, namely in the DNA, of course. The DNA, of course. And this, not, this knowledge is knowledge of how to keep the organism, or in fact, more specifically, the gene in existence over time. So I'm going to skip past that entire section, largely speaking on biology, and you, know, you get the book for that, to read that. I'm skipping to where Chiara writes. The other kind of recipe I mentioned is those that maintain our civilization in existence. By coding for how to build things like palaces, factories, cars, and robots. Such recipes contain knowledge too. They consist of information that can perpetuate itself, embodied in physical support such as our brains, bits of paper, books, documentaries, historical records, scientific papers, conference proceedings, the internet, and so on. However, this kind of knowledge is brought about via a different process than natural selection. It is produced by thinking and it can reach further than knowledge that emerges directly by natural selection. It is primarily this kind of knowledge that humans have been able to construct a civilization that is tentatively improving and growing, despite also often making bad mistakes. Such knowledge consists of thoughts. It is made of the same stuff as dreams are made on. Yet rather than fading away like fog in the morning sun, as Prospero suggests, knowledge is the key to resilience. 
The knowledge in his speech survives to this day. In fact, knowledge is the most resilient stuff that can exist in our universe. Given that knowledge has such an essential role in the survival of complex entities, it is essential to understand the process by which new knowledge is created from scratch in our mind. Fortunately, this process was elucidated by the philosopher Karl Popper in the mid-20th century. He argued that knowledge creation always starts with a problem, which we can think of as a clash between different ideas someone has about reality. Incidentally, this suggests a rather positive, uplifting interpretation of conflicting states of mind where contrary impulses clash and fight. These conflicts are all examples of problems, but luckily problems can lead to new discoveries. For example, when writing a story, the clash in the author's mind might be between the desire to use elegant, lyrical language and the necessity of keeping the attention of the reader alive with a gripping plot. The author has to find a way of meeting both these criteria, which may clash in certain situations. A long passage describing an idyllic landscape might give a perfect chance to meet the former criterion, but might result in the reader dropping the book and switching on the TV because it slows down the pace of storytelling. To address problems such as this, one has to create new knowledge. First, one conjectures several tentative solutions, the analogue of variations in replicators in natural selection. These could take the form of actual drafts written down on paper, or thoughts, or a combination of those. Those conjectures may well be full of errors and produce even worse results at first. So one proceeds with the second phase, criticism. Criticism is the act of seeking and correcting errors in an attempt to improve on the solutions, the analogue of natural selection. Sometimes this process may be completely opaque to us, so that we may have the impression that good ideas come out of the blue, but it does in fact take place. The author will usually discard most of the earlier versions of the story until some final product that meets both criteria comes about. This final product is if the process has worked, may have the hallmark of all masterpieces. It is hard to change further while still meeting the criteria because it has been obtained by tentatively removing flaws in previous versions which met the criteria to a lesser extent. The masterpiece contains new knowledge. It shall be remembered. It shall be translated into different languages. It shall live on for centuries and survive for generations, inspiring readers of all ages as long as civilization survives. As Shakespeare's sonnet number 18 says of itself, so long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this and this gives life to thee. That process is tentative. Given that there is no design in the laws of physics, there is no guarantee that one shall make progress by conjecture and criticism. But one can. For the same reason, a solution that looks good for one problem may be found to be inadequate at a later stage. For example, in physics, Newton's theory of gravitation had been tremendously successful for nearly three centuries at explaining planetary motion and many other things. But nevertheless, it was later found to be inadequate and was superseded by a better theory, Einstein's general relativity. Pausing there, my reflection. So this is a remarkable application of the nascent physics of constructor theory to epistemology, and in particular to knowledge that tends to cause itself to remain in place. And in particular, you know, great works of literature or great works of music where the masterpiece, as we refer to, is a masterpiece precisely because errors have been corrected. Errors in light of a particular criteria, set of criterion um, that the author, the composer, is striving to meet. It's that thing that is said in Amadeus 
about that Mozart uh, talking about Mozart's music. Displace one note, and there would be diminishment. If you try and fiddle with the great works of classical music, even the great works of pop music, then they tend to sound worse. The composer is striving for something objectively good. And even if they cannot explain precisely what it is, they're nonetheless meeting it. Okay, It might be inexplicit knowledge. Or when it comes to books, you know, one of my favorite all-time uh, works of literature is Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. And many of us love it precisely because of exactly how Chiara described this clash that occurs in the mind of the author. No doubt, and some people, some people do find Tolkien's work slow in parts. And this is precisely why some of us absolutely love it, because it is this wonderful, finely tuned blend of a fast-paced plot, interesting characters getting up to fun stuff that's exciting, and these long, poetic passages of prose describing the countryside, the scenery, and you feel like you're there if you really take it on board. And it's nice to have that kind of experience with a book. And that's why it's so long, of course. You know, it has these very long passages where you can sit back and, and meditate and relax and, and really imagine that you're there. And it really does inspire uh, one's imagination. You can visualize, you know, the, 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 the forests and the mountains leap into existence because of these long passages where... Tolkien being just an absolute master of the English language is able to conjure these images in your mind. And then that's broken up with the excitement of some sort of uh, plot thing going on with the characters where they're being attacked by the baddies or uh, some other great uh, uh, battle goes on. And so Tolkien clearly was well, did have that clash in his mind at times, no doubt. No doubt he, had, he probably thought to himself, this is going on a bit long. Or he's thinking, well, now I'm just engaged in, a, in, in authoring a blockbuster fairy tale, which is what he never wanted to do. But they're, they're kind of exciting. There's something fun and exciting happening on every page. But that doesn't happen in Lord of the Rings. So it is a masterpiece because of this. At least some of us would say it's a masterpiece because of this. So too, of course, with, with Shakespeare's work or with any of the great poets and playwrights, you know, you, it's difficult to improve. Okay? Not to say it's an impossible or in principle to improve, but very difficult, hard to vary which is what makes it good. That's the thing. That's one of the things that make it good. Okay? It's hard to vary while still achieving what you want it to achieve. In the case of Lord of the Rings being an absolutely engaging, entertaining, thrilling um, read, uh, an impressive read. Okay, let's go back to the book. And Kiara writes, There are no absolute sources of certain truth. Any good solution to a problem may also contain errors. This principle is based on fallibilism, a pillar of Popper's explanation of rational thinking. Fallibilism makes progress feasible because it allows for further criticism to occur in the future. Even when at present we seem to be content with whatever solution we have found, it leaves space for creating ever-improving theories, stories, works of art and music. It also tells us that errors are extremely interesting things to look for. Whenever we try to make progress, we should hope to find more of them as fast as possible. Now, I'm going to do something that I haven't done with my other series on the beginning of infinity, but I'll, I'll do it here for this episode. And I'm going to skip uh, a, an extensive number of pages, probably about 20 pages or so, because it's 
uh, largely about physics, which is the area I'm most interested in, probably alongside of epistemology. And there's a lot of epistemology there as well. And so I want to devote a separate episode, my next episode, to that part of this first chapter. I want to end today's episode, however, with something that comes later, which really, I think, very clearly illuminates the centrality, importance of this concept of counterfactuals and how physics hasn't really dealt with counterfactuals before, but constructive theory offers a new lens into understanding reality scientifically. And so I'm going to read um, the story that Chiara tells um, from ancient Greek myth. This is still in chapter one. And Chiara writes, Consider, as another example, a simple story, one that could be told from generation to generation by oral tradition without having to be written down. An ancient Greek myth will do. The story goes that Theseus, son of Aegeus, king of Athens, went to Crete to kill the Minotaur. Theseus made an agreement with his aged father that if he defeated the Minotaur, on their return his crew would raise white sails on the ship. Had he perished, his crew would raise black sails. So off went Theseus and he defeated the Minotaur, but on his way back, distracted by all sorts of things, including possibly the presence of his fiancée, Ariadne, on, on the ship, he forgot to tell the crew about the sails. The crew left the black sails on, and Aegeus, seeing the ship approaching from the highest tower of Athens, thought his son was dead. So he threw himself into the sea and drowned. This tragic story is why the sea is now called the Aegean. Now suppose we asked a master storyteller to tell that story with the constraint that he could formulate statements only about what happens. That is, he must report the full story without ever referring to counterfactual properties. In particular, he cannot refer to properties that have to do with what could or could not be done to physical systems. This task turns out to be impossible. For the story to make sense and to convey its full meaning, two attributes of the ship are essential. One that can be used to send a signal by assuming one of two states, white sail showing or black sail showing, the other that the state of having black or white sails can be copied onto another physical system, such as Aegeus's eyes and brain. The copyability property tells us that the flag contains information, just as in the case of replicators. These two properties, just like the property of blank paper, are counterfactual. So that myth could not be told, conveying its full meaning under the constraint that one should refer only to what happens, not even by the best storyteller ever. Pause there. My reflection. Ending the reading for today of The Science of Canon Kant. What a wonderful um, way to um, bring myth into this whole thing and to bring storytelling into this thing because I think that gets across the whole point of this. Hitherto, physics has been about dynamical laws where you plug in, and I'll do an example next time, where you plug in the conditions, initial conditions, they're often called, but they can be conditions at any particular time, which will allow you to then do a prediction of what will happen. And this has always been the story of physics. Here we're going to predict what will happen. Or in certain modes of quantum theory, um, what probably will happen? Something like that. Okay, and in Bayesianism, of course, you get this whole idea of what probably will happen. B, 
But in other areas, like storytelling, for example, it makes no sense at all to just talk about what will happen. We want to know what could possibly have happened. The only way that story makes sense, the only way we know why the king throws himself into the ocean, why the sea is now called the Aegean, is because his, his son was flying black sails. If he had have been flying white sails, as he should have been, if he had have defeated the Minotaur, then the sea would not have been called the Aegean, because the king would never have flung himself into the sea, killing himself. Now, this makes sense of the story. This makes sense of the story in literature. How much more so, then, can it make sense of what physically is going on in reality, in physical reality? This is why this new mode of explanation in physics is just so exciting. This is at the crux of it. That hitherto we've been given this tiny little slice of reality through the lens of physics. Powerful as it is, useful it is, and I'll talk about all the ways in which it's so useful and powerful next time via the book. But it is a tiny sliver of the possibilities that give you the much more grand picture of what reality is about. And hopefully into the future as constructive theory unfolds and we learn more about it via uh, researchers working in this area, we, we, we begin to flesh out, we begin to colour in the lines about what constructive theory is telling us about physical reality. Um, but for now, at least we have the stage set that we are pivoting away from this single line idea of physics tells us what is going to happen, what has happened and what is going to happen. But constructive theory, moving beyond the dynamical laws, can now explain what possibly could happen. And that what possibly could happen indeed comes down in part to what we choose to create knowledge about because then that allows physical possibilities to occur in the future. And we, people, are instrumental in that, central to that whole conception. So I'm excited about this series. Go and get the book. It's a great book. Um, this is my only second reading of it, so I'm still learning new things um, about it as I, as I go through. And look out also for uh, an episode about the fabric of reality released uh, near to this one. It'll probably be a short one, but near to this one. Okay, until next time. Bye-bye.